Welcome to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves, your host for tonight's show. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Steve Holly, and he'll be answering your questions on Crack, the Ugly Truth About Dams. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask Steve a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com. Use the Q&A text box there to send your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. And while you're there, make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Just fill out the form on the right side of our homepage, and we'll let you know when the next live show will be. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about 48 hours after the show ends. You can also find it on any of the podcast distribution sites like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you listen to your podcasts. So if you have to leave early, you can return to our website or any of the podcast platforms at your convenience and listen to the recording at any time. If you're out and about on Facebook, Instagram, or X, be sure to share our podcasts. And when you do, use the hashtag AskAboutFlyFishing and hashtag FlyFishing. The content of this broadcast is copyrighted and is the property of the Knowledge Group Inc. doing businesses Ask About Fly Fishing. When we return, we'll be talking with Steve Holly about crack, the ugly truth about dams. Colorado River at Lee's Ferry is called by some the world's largest spring creek. It's a massive, clear-running tailwater fishery that runs 15.5 miles from the base of the Glen Canyon Dam to the upper reaches of the Grand Canyon. At times, it gives the impression of being not one or two, but a series of parallel spring creek-like waterways. The fishing is great, and the scenery is gorgeous. Lee's Ferry Anglers provides professional guide service to this outstanding rainbow trout fishery, as well as food and lodging at Cliff Dweller's Restaurant and Lodge. See for yourself why Lee's Ferry is on every fly fisher's must-do list. Visit leesferryanglers.com or call them at 800-962-9755. Again, that's leesferryanglers.com or call them at 800-962-9755. Before we introduce Steve, we'd like to let you know about the great prizes we have to give away tonight. For our drawing tonight, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year membership to Trout Unlimited. Now, if you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and look for the link under Steve's section that says register for our free drawing. Click on that link and fill out the form, and we'll announce the winners at the end of the show. We'll also be giving away a copy of Steve's book, Crack, The Future of Dams in a Hot Chaotic World. Here's how you can win. You must be the first person to answer the question I ask at the end of the show. The question will be about something that Steve and I talk about during the show. Just submit your answer along with your name and location in the text box on our homepage, and you have a possibility of winning Steve's book. So, again, listen closely. Use your best typing skills. Take notes. And you may be winning that copy of Steve's latest book, Crack, The Future of Dams in a Hot Chaotic World. Our guest tonight is Steve Hawley. Steve is an environmental journalist who writes about rivers, dams, and the ecological impacts that they have on salmonoids in the American West. His book, Crack, The Future of Dams in a Hot Chaotic World, was released in May of 2023. 
He is the writer and co-producer of an award-winning documentary, Damned to Extinction, which came out in 2019, and the author of Recovering a Lost River. Steve, welcome to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. Thank you for having me on, Roger. Well, pleasure to do so, and uh, I'm excited about our talk tonight because we've got lots of questions <laughs> for <laughs> you. I hope you're ready. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah, it's a really great book that you wrote recently and, you know, answered a lot of questions for me, but also created a lot of questions, too. So, yeah. And there's just been a lot of activity. Now, you just published that book this past year, 2023, Track yep, the Future of Dams in a Hot Chaotic World. What inspired you to write this book? Well, I had already written a book about dams, and that book, which you mentioned, Recovering a Lost River, was the inspiration or part of the inspiration for a film that Patagonia made called Damnation. It, that came out in 2013. And I guess as punishment for not taking part in the making of the documentary, Patagonia asked if I'd be willing to do kind of a follow-up book because they felt like in the movie they depicted a lot of projects that were sort of halfway complete, both dam removals and dam prevention. And so I agreed. The book, you could almost write a book about the writing of this book because it was an epic journey. There was, uh, I originally had a co-author. He got busy having a family. So that didn't work, and it took a while to, to figure that out. Then the pandemic hit, and my publisher was not, you know, Patagonia, just to their credit, pulled back from all of their extracurricular activities and just focused on making sure that everybody that worked for them kept their jobs and had health insurance. But lo and behold, as we emerged from the pandemic, the good folks at Patagonia said, let's finish this thing up. And so we did. So now this is my second and probably last damn book or damn book. <laughs> last damn book. Be. Yeah. <laughs> no pun intended. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, this is um, – I saw that, and I didn't mention that earlier, but, it, yeah, it is published by Patagonia. And, uh, yeah, so, Patagonia you know, has their own – oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to no, say they have, their own, uh, they have their own book publishing wing. It's just called Patagonia Books, and I would encourage anybody who is interested in Western literature or outdoor literature to, to check out their website. My book's on there, but, of course, there's lots of others that are a worthy read. Yeah, yeah, well – They've played a big role in the world of, uh, you know, and especially in the fly fishing world over the years. Yep. So, yeah, and highly respected. So, um, the you know, you make note of this in your subtitle, you know, Future of Dams in a Hot Chaotic World. So how do you see the role of dams evolving in, in the context of global climate change and what's going on? So what's the importance there? Well, I I see it as a scenario where we're going to be getting rid of more dams than we're going to be constructing at this point. And I think the reasons for that are, well, there are many, but there's a couple important ones. The first, as the title of the book hints, and I guess this was also a deciding factor in me wanting to write a second book about dams, under any even conservative climate change scenario, the big reservoirs that we have, particularly in hot, drier climates and closer to the equator, 
we're losing so much water out of these projects through evaporation that it's going to be questionable in a lot of cases about whether they're worth keeping. You mentioned uh, Glen Canyon Dam, and I totally agree with you. That's a lovely tailwater fishery below Glen Canyon Dam. But we've also seen the pictures in the New York Times and elsewhere of the more than 100 feet of reservoir elevation. You know, that's the volume of water that they've lost. And that's partly because of drought. It's not raining and snowing as much in the Colorado Basin as it used to, but it's also because of accelerated rates of evaporation. The standard sort of calculus used to be that in a big reservoir like Glen Canyon, you'd lose 10% a year of the volume of the water. In the book, I talk about a study that was done by some scientists at UC Boulder, and they estimate that you actually lose closer to 20%. And, you know, if you put a price tag on that, that's maybe not, as fishermen, that's not our main way of measuring what happens to water, but irrigators sure think about these things, and municipalities do too. The value of water that's been lost out of Lake Powell, the reservoir behind Glen Canyon Dam, is worth about $9 billion. So this isn't chump change. And any place that has a reservoir, a big reservoir that has experienced evaporation is only going to be experiencing, you know, higher rates of evaporation. The second part, and I'll try to keep this brief, is that we know now that reservoirs emit large amounts of methane, which is a far more potent greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. And there's a study that I talk about in the book that estimates that the world's reservoirs have a greenhouse gas equivalent footprint as the same as the nation of Germany, which is the sixth largest producer of greenhouse gases on the planet. So, you know, between the habitat destruction and loss that dams represent when they're built and the loss of water through evaporation that's accelerating under climate change, and the contribution to climate change that dams make through methane emissions, the future is not bright for big dams. Hmm. Now, you did um, mention in your book two facts that I wasn't aware of. One was that, since we're talking about the Glen Canyon Dam and the reservoir, that when they estimated originally, and I forget the date, you can remind me of that date, but sure. when they were building this, that they overestimated the amount of water that would be available. And then the second part that I remember from your book was that, and so the distribution of that water is cockeyed, for lack of a scientific yes. word. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, uh, and then, then the other side of that is that we are in a stage, forget about climate warming or whatever, but the, the American West is in a, a drought situation that's worse than it's been for many, many years. So yeah, uh, talk about uh, that. 1,200 years, yeah. <laughs> 1,200 years, okay, yeah. Yeah, the new word that scientists have come up with to describe what's happening in the Intermountain West is aridification. And, you know, what that means is the volume of and duration of precipitation that we are maybe used to seeing throughout the 20th century and into the 21st is on the decline and will continue to decline. So, you know, the way this plays out to keep using Glen Canyon Dam and Lake Powell as an example, you know, 
there used to be five marinas on Lake Powell. I believe there's two or three that are still operating. The upstreammost one, which I believe is called the Bullfrog Marina, is you wouldn't even know that there was ever water there. You can find pictures of it online. And the desert has taken it back, you know. And the reason for that, again, is just evaporative loss and the amount of silt that comes down the Colorado. And between those two forces, that reservoir is shrinking very quickly in geologic terms. Yeah, yeah. So it's, um, yeah, the expectation, you know, I was talking about distribution of water rights because I live in Colorado and very close to the headwaters of the Colorado River. And I did read a book, you may have read this one too, Steve, but it's called Down the Colorado. And it talks about the water distribution following from the headwaters down to Mexico, which really opened my eyes to gosh, how important the Colorado River is to the the West and how many people want a piece of that. Even in my own little valley here in Colorado, there's controversy and discussion about the kind of the the ranch ponds, you know, farmer ponds that were built up and take a little bit of water out of the creek and save it. And there's many of those up and down the valley. And the ranchers or the farmers down in the plains want that water. They want those dams broken and let the water free flow down because they want to use it downstream, you know, on the western slope. I mean, on the eastern slope. Yeah. Um, But, and then the people that live in the valley are fighting to keep them more so for use in case of fire mitigation, you know, for helicopters coming in and scooping up water to put out the wildfires that we're fighting. So, uh, so, I mean, even in my little valley, there's this controversy about, you know, water rights and use. And so, yeah, it's, it's, you know, what affects everybody. What sort of rides underneath all that is, um, and I don't talk about this too much in the book, but it's nonetheless a pretty interesting topic and very controversial the way that water is allocated in most Western states is through a rule called the right of prior appropriation. And this was another law that was passed in the 19th century to kind of encourage people to settle all over the West. And what it says is first in time, first in use. So if you were the first to roll into your valley there in the, you know, in the upper Colorado basin and stake a claim for your 160 acres, or whatever it was, you would be entitled to all of the water that you could possibly use. And the next person down would be entitled to whatever you had left. And the third person down would be entitled to whatever that person had left. And so, (laughs) yeah, it's created a culture, especially in agriculture, of uh, what you might call water buffaloes, right? So now, you know, there is... The principle of the law has been somewhat tempered by the reality that everybody needs to have water if they're going to grow crops. So there is kind of a sharing arrangement, but nonetheless, you're punished for not using the full allotment of water that's assigned to you. Mm. And so this is why in Western states water is so contentious. That law plays a – it's like a lot of the 19th century natural resource laws that we still have on the books. they probably need to be revisited at some point, but of course the vested interests that benefit from the status quo are not so interested in revisiting those things. So, uh, yeah, a kind of better arrangement of sharing could probably come up with 
or you know, could probably be devised. And I would say at some point in the very near future, that's not only going to be desirable, but also a necessity. Right, right, yeah. That's uh, kind of a whole other topic about how can we keep building, you know, in the West <laughs> when there's only, you know, so much water and even less water as time goes on. Because it's happening in Colorado. You had a picture in your book about down in Arizona. You know, yeah. building out in the desert uh, doesn't really make sense anymore. But a question comes to mind, you know, if we don't have dams, I mean, we've been taught about, well, we have the dams, they create electricity and they store water and, and so forth. What are some of the innovative alternatives to dams for water management and, and power generation? I think one of the most exciting things or innovative things in terms of water storage is a program that they're working on, especially this year in California with all the rain they've had. They're doing groundwater recharge of the aquifer. So in years like this one when California has a surfeit of water for sure, because the storms were incredible, you know, yeah. you know something yeah. like two-thirds of their annual rainfall, in some cases more than that, fell in one weekend. I think there's eight of these projects around California right now, and maybe it's more. What they do is divert uh, the flow of a river or stream in, back into underground storage, the aquifer that you know municipalities and farms tap sometimes to irrigate their crops. And the advantage to that is, of course, you don't lose any water through evaporation because the water is stored underground. And assuming that the underlying bedrock doesn't have any toxic minerals in it, you're also, you know, the water's safe from being contaminated through aerosolized herbicides and pesticides. So it's a clean, safe way to store water uh, under the ground that, that doesn't require building a large reservoir. The second part of that is uh, <laughs> dams are kind of, in terms of power production, are a bit of a relic. You probably saw in the California papers and in the national press this week that largest solar project in uh, the country just came online in uh, the, out in the desert in California. And the reality of these types of projects, the reason that they're being built is that the power that's produced is cheaper than almost every other form of power production that includes fossil fuels and hydropower. And, of course, the advantage of solar is you can build it close to where the power is being consumed. Dams create a scenario where you have centralized energy production in a place like Glen Canyon Dam and miles and miles of poles and wires, which are really expensive. And in an era of increasingly chaotic weather, they're also really prone to, you know, being damaged. So, you know, the world's kind of moving away from what is ultimately, I think, kind of a 19th century technology in dams and hydropower. Hmm. Okay. Okay. So, you know, like, is there, I don't know that you know the answer to this question, but is there enough power being generated that if they took out the Glen Canyon Dam uh, and it quit generating power, would L.A. be able to survive? <laughs> Yes. Uh, yes. The interesting thing, you know, back in 2018, a group of us who had been advocating for years for removal of some dams in Idaho decided that we needed to educate ourselves more about the power side of the equation. We knew a lot about fish and what they do to dams, but we knew nothing about electricity production and distribution. And 
I think what's interesting about hydropower right now is it's not not only is it not the cheapest, it's not the most efficient. So, for instance, you know, when it gets hot in, <laughs> this is, I guess, a little bit of an indictment of the electricity industry. When it gets hot in California, as it frequently does in July and August, it's not a matter of whether there's enough generation to turn, keep everybody's lights on and keep the, the brownouts and the blackouts at bay. It's oftentimes that the people who own those production facilities, no matter if it's fossil fuels or nuclear or, or solar or whatever, are waiting for a price signal that will allow them to maximize their profits. And so in the case of Southern California brownouts, you have Pacific Gas and Electric who's waiting for prices, you know, approaching a $1,000 a megawatt hour before they'll flip a switch. And mind you, this is power that on the day-to-day -day market sells for $50 a megawatt hour. So really it's a matter of distribution as much or perhaps more so than generation. And again, this goes back to what I mentioned earlier, Solar has a huge advantage because you can build solar production or generation closer to where it's being consumed. You don't have to send power from Glen Canyon Dam all the way into Los Angeles. You now have 400 megawatts of solar power with battery backup less than 50 miles away. Mm, okay, okay. Is there a particular story in your book that, you know, you documented that, you know, moved you, motivated you in, in some way? Yeah, there's a couple of them. I'll tell you just one. Okay. Uh, Robert Ellison, who is a Clallam tribal member, told me this story. Now, he told me over the phone, but it still just put, you know, chills. I'm getting goosebumps on my arm right now just thinking about it. Wow. So when they took out dams on the Elwha, the rock formation that, the Clallam believe that was where they emerged, you know, onto the earth. That rock formation had been covered by the El, uh, by, I think, by Glines Canyon Dam, which is one of the two dams that was removed on the Elwha. And for those tribal people to see that rock emerge into the, you know, the oxygen side of the Earth's crust again, they it was a, there was a lot of ceremony, there was a lot of emotion. They even went so far as to make necklaces with little vials of water. This rock formation has like uh, the depressions in it where water, you know, uh, gathers. And they made necklaces with vials and they filled up the vials with water from this creation site and brought it back to elders who weren't, you know, ambulatory enough to be there for the ceremony. So this is a big deal. You know, it speaks to the human rights issues that also are a big part of dam construction in the 20th century and the power of dam removal once you get past all the <laughs> all the rules and regulations to sort of restore people's hope and faith in uh, their culture and in, and in each other. And I think that's the most uh, mm -hmm. inspiring part of the stories that are in the book about dam removal. Yeah. Well, I noticed uh, that was, I thought, well, did he just do this once? And then I noticed it again and again and again. But when you do the captions on all your photographs, for instance, uh, Gary Woodcock paddles through the locks of Lower Granite Dam on the Snake River 
in a fellish dugout canoe. And yeah. you don't say you don't say whether that's Idaho or <laughs> you <Yeah>. say Confederated <laughs> Tribes of the Coville Reservation Ancestral yeah. Lands. And I thought that was you know, I mean you're paying tribute throughout the whole book to whose lands those were originally. And I just kudos to you for doing that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. you know, this is a for uh, for people who care to think about such things. You know, our the history of our country and the way we treated indigenous people is not a happy chapter. We created, I think, somewhere between three and four hundred treaties with uh, you know with First Nations folks, and I don't believe a single one of those treaties has ever been upheld in its original form. And dams play a huge role in that because, for instance, where the river that you were just talking about, the Snake, the Snake River Basin once produced half of all the salmon and steelhead in the Columbia River system. And one thing your listeners might be interested in knowing is that the Columbia, prior to dam construction, was the world's most productive Chinook salmon river. So there's somewhere between 5 and 10 million Chinook that came out of the Columbia system every year. And half of those fish came from the Snake Basin. So remember that all the Columbia River tribes, I shouldn't say that because that's not true, a good number of the most influential Columbia River tribes signed treaties in 1855. And they gave up land, but they retained the right to fish and hunt in all the usual and accustomed places. And the book outlines the big court battles that took place in the 70s to when indigenous people successfully defended their treaty rights. When we don't have fish in these rivers, we are once again violating the promises that we made in treaties to these people who gave the United States land in exchange for what they feel like is a sacred cultural right to continue to fish and hunt. And Mm so, you know, it really... If you want to wax philosophic, what we do with dams is also a reflection of our national character. And so when we take out dams, there's a lot of human rights that have been kind of maybe, you know, swept by the wayside for a century or so. And it's uh, inspiring to see our country honoring what they had originally promised. Right, right. Hold on to that. I'll be right back. I take a short break here and we'll dig into more, you know, how dams are affecting us and also our fisheries. I need to talk about that. So be right back. The Ugly Bug Fly Shop in Casper, Wyoming, has been serving fly fishers in Wyoming and around the world since 1983. The selection of -of top-of-the-line gear and a huge assortment of flies is one of the best in the land. All products are available in their fly shop and online. Looking for advice? Just give them a call and their expert professional staff will help you with whatever you need. Visit the Ugly Bug Fly Shop today at uglybugflyshop.com or call them at 866-845-9284. Again, the uglybugflyshop.com or 866-845-9284. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio and we're talking with Steve Hawley about Crack, the only truth about dams. If you'd like to ask Steve a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use the Q&A text box there to send us your question. 
Okay, Steve, I often ask my guests at this point in the show, you know, what's going on now that you've finished this book, Cracked? And just tell us about what's happening in your world. Sure. I guess I'm the kind of writer that uh, at least likes to try to walk what he or she talks. And I grew up fishing the Deschutes River in central Oregon. And right now the Deschutes is threatened by the existence of three dams. This is kind of an interesting story because for the first 50 years that these dams were in place, quite accidentally they were a pretty effective bulwark against climate change. And the way that worked is that the biggest dam of these three dams on the Deschutes blocks three rivers. One of the rivers is really, really clean and really, really cold. It's called the Metolius. The other two are not so clean and a little bit warmer. Well, cold water sinks to the bottom of a reservoir. or uh, Well, it sinks wherever it is because it's denser. And the outlet works at this dam uh, were at the very bottom of the reservoir. So for 50 years, you talk about a fine tailwater fishery. The Deschutes, I would put up against Lee's Ferry or any place else in the world, you had 48 to 50 degree water coming out of the base of Round Butte Dam. And it created a nationally and even internationally recognized tailwater fishery, just like what you were talking about at Lee's Ferry. Well, the company that owns those dams, Portland General Electric, they had to get a new license in 2005. In order to do this, they created this kind of Rube Goldberg contraption that was supposed to help pass fish above the dam. And in the process of doing that, they did away with drawing all that cold water off the bottom of the reservoir. And so now we're getting sickly green, polluted, warm water coming down the lower 100 miles of the Deschutes. So this is one of those strange fights where ultimately those dams need to come out, but the license that allows Portland General Electric to operate is good until 2055. So in the meantime, we're trying to get the company to go back to what they were doing before, <laughs> which seems kind of counterintuitive for a guy that argues all the time for dam removal. But it's an emergency situation, and in, weirdly, in this scenario, the fix is literally the flip of a switch. If they were to draw water off the bottom of that reservoir, we'd have that tailwater fishery again. So I'm working for an organization called the Deschutes River Alliance part-time, helping the campaign to, to get back to that cold, clean water off the bottom of the reservoir. And I think long-term, you know, if I'm lucky enough to be around that long, hopefully we'll be successful in putting clean water back in the river, and then we can turn our efforts towards getting those dams removed. Yeah, yeah. So um, is this a makings for a Another book? <laughs> the story uh, actually, about uh, the, the shoots? Yeah, or? I try to alternate movies with books. Uh, <laughs> I guess cynically hedging my bets a little bit because, you know, no, people are not reading as much as they used to. Although fly fishermen are really good at reading. I mean, like, I, that's <laughs> – I feel like okay, there's a built-in <laughs> audience. Yeah, I, feel, I do feel like there's a built-in audience for books with the fly fishing community. So I'm actually, in addition to working for the Deschutes River Alliance, I'm finishing up a documentary about this issue. And that movie will be out in June. And oh. it's called The Last 
the title of the movie is going to be the the last 100 the, the fight for the lower Deschutes river mm. good good well sounds good be looking forward to seeing that yeah yeah i mean you brought up a quandary right of we're damned if we have the dams and we're damned if we don't have the dams i mean if we take out for instance if we take out Glen Canyon down and let the Colorado go back to its natural state, there won't be a fishery there anymore. It will be that is true. the natural chubs and uh, I forget what the, the native fish are there. But, I mean, yeah. it's a dirty river. I mean, it's full of silt, like you were saying earlier. Yeah. I mean, it, it's that way all the way from, unless the dam's put in place, all the way from uh, Flaming Gorge you know, reservoir yeah. uh, up in the Green River. I mean, it gets dirty pretty quick there within the first 15 miles and stays dirty all the way to Mexico, I think, unless there's a dam. So what are, yeah. you know, <laughs> we're going to fight for removal of some of these dams and we're going to lose fisheries for us recreational fishermen. Sure, women. yeah. But, I mean, that's just, but in other cases, like on the Columbia, you're going to open up the gates to more spawning and more salmon and steelhead and things like that. How do you weigh those two things, you know, one against the other? Yeah, I always think of what uh, Aldo Leopold said. He said, a thing is right when it, oh, I'm going to mess up this quote, but I'm going to try to, I'm going to try to figure this out anyway. <laughs> a thing is right when it preserves the integrity, stability, and beauty of the natural system and a thing is wrong when it tends not to. And I think that's a really good way as fly fishers for us to look at, you know, what we might gain or lose by a dam removal. Is it going to return integrity to the natural systems that furnish us with those sports that we love so much to begin with? And... Yeah, when Glen Canyon Dam comes out, that wonderful tailwater trout fishery will go away. But, you know, there used to be a variety of uh, larger and in some cases more interesting fish than trout in the Colorado. Mm -hmm. I wrote a story years ago about some of the huge fish that used to be in, you know, migrate up and down the Colorado, hundreds of miles. And you know, there was actually a cannery on the San Juan River for this variety of fish, the name of which I'm not going to remember right now, but I do remember the size of these things. They would get beyond three feet long. And I had a conversation with the biologist that checks the – actually, it was the Yampa where this took place. I had this conversation oh, okay. with a biologist who sort of surveys the river to see if these fish are still around. I said, well, how do you do that? He goes, oh, we cast for them. <laughs> he said – I caught one that was every bit of three feet long when the last time we had to go out and quote-unquote survey, you know. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, that's the integrity of the system coming back and giving those Colorado Basin migratory fish a chance to do what they did for thousands of years before the dams were there. Yeah, yeah. And there are, well, over the past... 20 years, you know, 20 years ago, people in the United States wouldn't think of going after carp on a fly. I mean, that was yeah. like, that Ooh, was a yeah. trash fish. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Now it's the thing. Oh, yeah. It has been for the past 10, 15 years or so that it's, it's come into vogue as a target trophy fish. Yeah. 
So, yeah, yeah who's to say that. that we couldn't turn our heads in a different direction and right. fish for different fish? But it is. There are so many places. I mean, like Flaming Gorge and the Green River up there, beautiful tailwater. You're talking about the Deschutes, you know. And, yeah, right. I could see your point of saying, okay, well, let's make it a nice tailwater until we can get that dam removed, yeah. right? But, you know, the other thing that I think the reason we love to fish so much is that fish are unpredictable, right? We don't really know what they're going to do, even certainly not as individuals, but even species-wide. There's a biologist in the state of Maine named Nate Gray, and he's really a delight to talk to. He's got a wonderful sense of humor. And he pointed out to me that on the East Coast, they're doing everything they can to try to get shad back in the rivers in, around New England. And at some point in the last 20 or 30 years, somebody accidentally threw some shad in the Columbia, and we have millions of them. I mean, we can't... <laughs> we can't. <laughs> it's strange because it's the system of reservoirs that that's the, the spawning habitat in the tailwater below a dam where the big pools are. That's where shad spawn. So we've created the perfect habitat for them, you know, and I, I can't crawl inside a fish's brain, but I suspect they don't really know or care what a dam is, but they know good habitat when they see it. And right. if you create the habitat, they're going to show up for better or worse, right? Right, right. Yeah, like peacock bass in Florida, right? Yeah. You know, <laughs> um, yeah. Come from the Amazon and now they're, yeah, almost invasive down there. So it can work. Yeah. Yeah, pro or con, I suppose. Yeah, the um, there's a question from Gary Kaufman here in North Carolina. He says, detractors to dam removal cite financial and environmental benefits of dams. Can you provide a counterpoint to these arguments? By the way, I'm a firm <laughs> supporter of dam removal. Sure. But uh, you kind of addressed some of this already, but yeah. Sure. Without knowing exactly what specific benefits he might be talking about, to every perceived benefit, and particularly in the case of dams, there's a greater cost. And you can talk about that in financial terms. One of the things that's more salient, perhaps, and especially in an era of climate change, is the, the risk to property and life that dams represent in an era where in North Carolina, certainly in California, certainly on the Gulf Coast, we don't know from one year to the next whether it's going to be a drought or whether you're going to have a storm like you had in California last week that dumped 13 inches of rain in a weekend. And dams are not built, we're not engineered with that kind of radical variability in mind. So you get dam failures, which I talk about. There's a whole chapter devoted to dam failures in the book. And probably the most heart-wrenching story in that chapter is what happened in Italy in the 1960s when a dam didn't collapse. There was actually a landslide that caused a tidal wave or, you know, a tsunami, I guess, on the surface of the reservoir, and the wave went over the top of the dam and literally wiped out this town in Italy called Longarone. And there was a, an even larger dam disaster in China and even around the United States and there's been dam failures, tragic story in Nebraska, last big spring meltout they had there, I believe it was in 2017, a dam failed and several people died, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars, or I'm sorry, millions and millions of dollars done 
in terms of property damage too. So the risk that we face in an era of climate chaos with plugging up a river and then oftentimes building in the floodplain below the dam are not going to be uh, rewarded as they <laughs> as reliably as they were maybe in the 20th century. Yeah, yeah. And like you said earlier, just talking about the financial, you know, uh, benefits that may have been there years ago are going away with solar and other ways to generate energy. Yeah. What other misconceptions do we have about dams? You know, we talked about energy. Yeah, I think the biggest misconception, especially in an era of climate change or climate chaos, is that you know, you can store with the solution to a water supply problem is the construction of a dam. And you're still hearing arguments around the country and, in fact, around the world that this is what we should be doing. We already talked about evaporation, but there's just a sort of basic flaw in this concept. And there's an analogy that I can make here. You know, if uh, you have a, a home that has a problem with the delivery of water to your house, your solution generally is not to go to the master bedroom or master bathroom and put in a bigger bathtub, right? Because the, the volume of water, uh, it actually, that analogy is imperfect because the volume of water that you have in a natural system is not going to be constant like it is in a house. It is, in fact, in an era of climate change, going to be decreasing. So the idea that you can build a bigger bathtub, so to speak, and have that solve a problem that in the long term is not really storage, it's volume on a year-in and year-out basis. And then on top of that, when you build that facility, you're going to lose an extraordinary amount of that water to evaporation. It just doesn't make sense. You know, and I think you could make the case that even when uh, our climate situation was more predictable, there are a lot of instances where this still didn't make sense. But mm-hmm. um, well, that was we... uh, go ahead. That was uh, you know when I talked about these farm ponds and so forth up my valley, that was one of the things that well, I'm the water board or whatever. If they're going to keep these ponds, they're forcing them to put in measuring devices and systems to see how much water goes in and out and determine evaporation off those ponds. So they're, they're, you know, they're realizing that that is an issue, even on a small pond, not talking like, you know, like Powell, you know, kind of thing. Right. But, uh, yeah, so I I found that interesting that, gosh, they're they're like measuring every drop. So. Yeah. And And then then wasting it on the yards in Denver. Right. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I think the next frontier for water conservation really, though, is agriculture. In a typical Western watershed, agriculture is still the biggest user of water in that system. You know, we're talking 70 to 80 percent of the water that's withdrawn from the river or rivers goes to crops. Now, we all need to eat. I don't want to make the case that we want farmers to stop producing food, but so often what happens in the West is they're not producing food. They're producing forage for cattle and horses. Mm-hmm. And uh, increasingly, especially in Utah, they're, 
growing you know low value crops and shipping them across the ocean because the it's a long story but essentially the shipping rates are make it a favorable trade deal to ship this low value water intensive crop across the ocean to Asia where their increasing appetite for cows is uh, being supported by ultimately water withdrawals from the Colorado basin so you know the kind yeah. of economics that have always considered whatever happens to water as a kind of externalized cost that is going to have to change if we're going to continue to have some semblance of healthy natural rivers in in the American West. Yeah. I have a question from Taylor Street in New Mexico and actually I've had I've interviewed Taylor on my show. He's a fly fishing okay. guide in New Mexico and he wrote and he says in New Mexico and Colorado it's common to drain small reservoirs to do quote dam repair. This of course is very bad for fisheries. But I always wonder <laughs> yeah. is how many of these fixes are legit. After all, if you ask the guy who fixes the dam if he needs to repair, what's he going to say? <laughs> he needs to do it, right? Uh, right. But, but perhaps these fixes every few years are valid, question mark. Um, what can you tell us about those kind of situations? Well, I can tell you that concrete has a lifespan of about 60 years, right? And a lot of our dams around the country are getting – older than that and mm -hmm. you know your friend is absolutely right that uh, draining a reservoir to do repairs is an ecological nightmare right whatever uh, whatever critters are trying to eke out a living in the reservoir are going to have a really hard time but I think this goes back to the question about dam safety the maintenance is necessary but it's also a kind of exercise in diminishing returns. You know, I believe that there's a outfit that is uh, a national sort of affiliation of engineers, the American Society for Dam Safety, and they give the infrastructure around water and dams in this country, I believe it was a D plus the last time I looked at uh, oh, their wow. report, which comes out every year. You know, we went crazy in the 20th century in, uh, from 1930 to 1970. We put 90,000 dams on, over, you know, these dams are 15 feet or taller. So we put 90,000 of these things on the American landscape, and many of them have reached their, you know, their, their past their usable lifespan. The problem is when we built these things, there was no thought to what it was going to take to decommission them once they're useful life is passed. So that's kind of the dilemma we're dealing with now. There are many, many dams, particularly in the east. People agree that they need to come out. The question is, who's going to pay for it? You know, this is where ideas like a small uh, surcharge or tax on uh, megawatts of power that are produced that could go to some sort of national dam removal fund. That is an idea worth considering because that is one of the biggest hurdles to getting dams out right now is just the cost. So politics and policy can play in the decision-making process on, you know, and work in the favor of dam removal as well as, you know, how they work to create the dams in the first place because, yeah, yeah I, I'm sure that, that in the early stages there were, 
Well, I know there were, of course, some big battles over, like, again, the Glen Canyon Dam for environmental reasons when that was built, but seems that politics won out in that case, and the dam yeah. got built. But we could use politics as a positive way to generate another tax. <laughs> but, you know, you got to yeah. kind of pay your dues one way or the other, right? I mean, it's... Yeah, you know... Your um, mistakes don't go unnoticed, and, you know, sometimes we have to pay to correct our, our mistakes from the past. So. I think, so, you know, in the world of both hunting and fishing, but, you know, since this is a show about fishing, we'll stick to that. You've seen over the past two decades a increasingly organized, increasingly vocal contingent of voters who are not pleased with the way that their Western congressmen and women are managing the rivers and that they love to fish. And, you know, we're slowly but surely getting organized. And I think this is an important, you know, nobody started fishing because they wanted to become an activist, right? <laughs> it usually happens <laughs> no. because yeah. you fish and you fall in love with a place and you realize on some level that it's threatened and you want that place to be its best. And so you become an activist to preserve the place. And I think fly fishermen all over the place are realizing that there are a multitude of threats to the places they love to spend their free time. And it's worth the investment in time, however big or small, that you want to do it to try to leverage the political process to have an outcome that, you know, favors fish and rivers. Yeah, yeah. Is there, I mean, anything specific going on right now that, I really think um, things changed in this country. I think it was a big wake-up call. I think it was around 2010. Somebody, one of your listeners might correct me. There was a congressman, and this is not strictly fishing-related, but I think it's ultimately it it does have implications for rivers. There was a congressman from Utah named Jason Chaffetz, and he quite naively decided that it would be a good idea to introduce a bill to – you know, sell off public lands and water to basically privatize publicly held assets. And backcountry hunters and anglers organized against Representative Shafetz, and he actually not only – he didn't even stick around long enough to lose an election. The pressure that he felt, the backlash from trying to get – to privatize what ultimately belongs to all of us caused him to step down. He quit. And I think that was kind of, uh, no pun intended, a watershed moment when sportsmen realize that they have a voice. They have, you know, collectively, in most Western states, tourism, including outdoor recreation, is the second or third biggest segment of the economy. And, you know, fishing is a big part of that. So if I had an MO for writing this book, it would be to sort of accelerate that process where fly fishers of every stripe realize that, you know, collectively we have the power to create outcomes that will create better fishing, right? Right, yeah. I think that's an important development. Yeah, and, you know, we are fighting other battles, just like the battles for use of water. Um, We also, as fly fishers, are fighting the battles for access to the water, for fishing purposes. Yeah. Montana is a, a big 
battleground for stuff like yes, that or others, you know, yeah. where the privatization of land restricts our access to that and it's turning into more of a, a pay-to-play sport. It is. You know, yeah. you have to join a club to get access to a good portion of a river or something. And, yeah, there are all these battles we have to fight. And it's the same about access to rivers for, like, rafting. I mean, yeah. we waited 12 years to get a permit to run the Colorado River through the Grand Canyon as a private yeah. trip. Yeah, you can yeah. go any day of the week if you want to pay a commercial outfitter. But as right. a private individual, I don't have access to that very easily. So um, I think I do yeah. think that access is going to be a big battle. You know, we're uh, sort of living in an and I do write about this in the book about we're in a sort of parallel universe to the world that Mark Twain wrote about in the late 19th century. He called it the Gilded Age, right? And it was a uh, it was a reference to a kind of counterfeit coin that had. Uh, thin layer of, uh, you know, valuable metal on the outside, and the inside was just a slug. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we, we're in an era of billionaires that, you know, on the famous fight in Montana was, of course, on the Ruby River where a cable TV magnate bought up uh, a couple thousand acres on the Ruby and then in violation of state law tried to fence people out of the river. And Montanans don't take very kindly to that. And, again, this is one of those, Issues where anglers are realizing that uh, if they can collectively raise their voices, that that things like that, that uh, we don't need to turn over our <laughs> our favorite fishing spots to the highest bidder. That you know we right. can maintain access to what we right. have. I need to take another quick break here, Steve. So uh, no worries. Give me Thirty seconds. Be right back. Okay. Fly Fishers International needs your support. Its conservation projects at both the national and club level are addressing critical issues of importance to fly fishers. The organization provides grants to help with the restoration of habitats like Wolf Creek in Idaho and Sands Creek in Delaware County, New York, and funds projects that collect valuable data about fish and their habitats like the Peacock Bass Study in Miami, Florida. FFI serves as a strong advocate for fly fishing in all waters for all fish to preserve and to promote the arts of fly casting and fly time, and to help ensure future generations can continue and enjoy these one-of-a-kind experiences. These efforts won't nearly be as effective without your help. If you're not already a member, we invite you to join Fly Fishers International as they work to cultivate conservation, education, and community within the sport of fly fishing. Join Fly Fishers International today and help support their fine work. For more information, go to their website at flyfishersinternational.org. Again, that's flyfishersinternational.org. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We're talking with Steve Holly about Crack, the Ugly Truth About Dams. If you'd like to ask Steve a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use that Q&A text box to send us your question. We did get a question in from uh, Phil McCartney in Kentucky. Steve, he says, what prospects are there for removal of dams in such a way that the consequences will be positive? Flood control and power generation have been among the reasons for building dams. What factors do you think are important to consider in removal? That's a great question. It really is. I would say what has happened, you know, fairly rapidly over the past 20 or 30 years is that dam removal has actually become a pretty precise science. 
And all of the things that go into dam removals, large and small, are really thoroughly vetted before the dam comes out. You know, you take a look at what's happening on the in my part of the world. I'm sorry, I don't know much about the southeast. I know that the rivers there are beautiful. My buddy Hal Herring grew up in Alabama and, and has written and also encouraged people to go visit that part of the world. I know it's beautiful. But, you know, the sort of national darling of dam removal right now is what's happening with the removal of four dams on the Klamath. That project was well-planned, well-funded, and all of the outcomes that they predicted have come to fruition. You know, there you can go to a website called DRIP, <laughs> which is an acronym uh, that I can't remember the words that go behind it, but it is essentially a database of dam removals that have happened in the past century oh. in the United States. And the, the interesting thing about that database is uh, there's not a dam removal. Well, actually, there's one exception to this. Of the now 1,400 or so dams that have been taken out around the country over the past 40 or 50 years, there's one case of a dam that was removed on the Hudson River system in New York where the, there was some contamination that didn't get addressed, and so uh, there were some negative effects to dam removal. In almost every other case, uh, actually in every other case that we know of, people generally like what they see post-dam removal more than they did, you know, more than what they had prior in other words, the fears that they had about dam removal did not come to fruition, and the result mm. was something that they were more pleased with than they thought they would be. So, you know, in terms of the consequences of what you lose, power production, water storage, there are ways to address those losses. We've already talked about the power side. Mm -hmm. And, of course, there are ways to store and distribute water that don't involve creating a, a giant reservoir in the middle of a big river system. So, you know, does the, the cost of dam removal always merit doing so? It depends on what your cost is, a subjective thing, I guess. And as yeah. fly fishers, I would say that most of us would say, yes, it's worth it. You know, it's worth doing that to get yeah. a functioning, healthy ecosystem back. It's worth the investment. How did they fund the, uh, the removal on the Klamath? Well, it's a two-state deal. California passed an omnibus water bill, and the state of Oregon allowed Pacific Power that owns those dams to uh, put a surcharge on their customers' bills. This is an interesting hmm. thing because I believe those removals all told the cost of them was a little over somewhere north of $400 million. Between Oregon and California, they raised $450 million to take the dams out. So it's, it's more than adequately funded before they even got out of the gate, which is a rare thing in the dam removal world. But and this is a not-so-subtle message to utilities that own dams that are aging out. You know, it was hard for Pacific Power to, to turn down this deal because they got essentially a subsidy from the state of California for removal and then a rate increase to cover the costs on the Oregon side. And so essentially what they're getting is subsidized retirement of a stranded asset. 
And, you know, if there's one thing that big companies love more than most anybody else, it's a subsidy to, <laughs> to help have the bottom line. It's kind of an American thing, you know. I mean, and so dam removal utilities out there could actually work to uh, help the price of your stock shares, you know. <laughs> have specific power. They seem to be pretty happy with the way things turned out. Yeah. Yeah, I was just, yeah, kind of interested in the. Yeah, who's paying for this stuff? But um, well, in yeah. um, getting back to Phil's question at the very end, he had, what factors do you think are important to consider in removal? And I don't know what he's really looking for there, but uh, it started me thinking about, okay, you know, what's going to happen to the river bed itself? You know, how yeah. will that change? What when they do remove a dam? What are some of those, you know, what do they go through, the logic they go through to protect things? Yeah, I mean, it's a cumbersome process. There's actually a chapter in my book devoted to how to remove a dam, and it's mostly aimed at smaller projects. But it is, uh, if I would encourage anybody who cares enough that has a dam they want to see come out to buy my book and read that chapter. It's not an easy process. There are a number of state and federal agencies involved that have to kind of check all the boxes for all the things that you need to do before you start ripping out the concrete. And we've been doing this enough now, though, that it is uh, the outcomes are predictable. So everything from the species of fish that might need to be trapped and hauled out of the reservoir while the structure is being demolished, to the fine sediments, how far are they going to travel downstream, or is there, are they contaminated? All of these things come under the, if you don't hire an engineer to remove a dam, you're probably not going about it in the right way. It's become kind of an exercise in bureaucracy, weirdly enough, after all of the sort of eco-terrorist fantasies of the, you know, novels of Edward Abbey and other people in the... <laughs> In the mm-hmm. 70s and 80s, when a dam comes out, it's really, I mean, it's inspiring in a different way because it's really, I think, kind of an exercise in local democracy. There has to be consensus building. There has to be the okay of the sort of relevant managing agencies. And there has to be a recognition that what you're trying to accomplish is an improvement rather than a mitigation for the loss mm-hmm. of something. It's not easy, but it's worth doing Mm -hmm. because people are doing it all over the country. Would it be possible, you know, to remove the Glen Canyon Dam or Hoover Dam, such huge (laughs) monoliths? I mean, is it practically possible to do something like that? I've had conversations with a couple different engineers, and they've all told me the same thing. If there's a way that it got built, there's a way to tear it down, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. I guess I guess when you look at it that way, it's like these big, tall buildings that they decide to, to scrape. You know, they put a couple of bombs in there, and yeah, and boom, it's down in three seconds. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. people dig that. It's it's kind of a weird thing about dam removal. They don't use. Uh, <laughs> I say this tongue in cheek. But they don't use enough explosives, right? And people really like to see things blown up in the name of the public good, right? Oh, yeah. uh, when yeah. uh, when they took out a dam across the Columbia from where I live here on the White Salmon River, 
I'm sure some of your listeners have seen this clip on the National Geographic page. My friend Andy Mazur shot it. But this is a, a dam in a narrow slot canyon, so they couldn't use the standard sort of typewriter your way down the concrete till you get to the riverbed method for dam removal. They had to blow out the bottom of it and drain the reservoir first. And, of course, to do that, they had to use explosives. So if you go to the Nat Geo website and look up Condit dam removal, you'll see Andy's clip, and I believe it has seven or eight million views. You know, so <laughs> we could probably design like a reality TV show, America's Deadliest Dams, and the, you know, the show, it could be a little mini-series, and it's the last yeah. episode of each <laughs> dam removal. Be the, yeah. Generate enough yeah. revenue to take out more dams, right? right? I mean. <laughs> yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, you could make yeah. it a, a multi-year series. Easily <laughs> for all the dams that have to come down. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Kurt Finlayson uh, in Utah, who's also been a guest on my show, an excellent fly fisher. He says, "I'm a proponent of dam removal based on my understanding of how it will affect fisheries and all that they connect. However, I am concerned about the mitigation projects and lands that have been created by dams." and the hydropower companies. In my local example, we have large wetlands and access to those lands that are held by the hydropower company. If we fight to take out the dam, I'm concerned we will lose all those wetlands, and then it will be developed. Is there a way to keep the best of both in your experience? Yes. The short answer to that question is when you start pressing the utility company to get rid of the dam, you, as a condition of removal, you tell them they have to provide both ongoing access and mitigation to protect those wetlands. You know, that's part of the bargain. An example of that on the, is on the Kalamas. There's one thing that large corporations don't like, and even smaller utilities don't like, is liability and risk. And so on the Klamath, what they did is they created a shell corporation called the Klamath River Restoration Company, or, or actually I think it's Klamath River Restoration Corporation. The sole reason for this shell company is to take on the liability that occurs when the dam's coming out. And so I think when you're negotiating removal, there are things like that where the company is protected from both ecological and financial disaster because somebody else is taking on the risk, and I think you can leverage that kind of protection that the company is getting by asking for things like protecting wetlands. And um, I don't think it's necessary to lose an opportunity or to lose good habitat in the name of, you know. It would be weird if uh, we let utility that owns a dam, you know, punish their customers and their, you know, neighbors and constituents for their want of a healthier ecosystem by ruining a part of that ecosystem. That's, that's mm -hmm. not good corporate citizenship. So, Yeah, yeah. Can you give us any specific examples when a dam was removed and that led to noticeable improvements in fishing quality? Or, or fish biodiversity? Sure. My, my favorite... Uh, <laughs> My favorite story, and this is the best example, there are others, but this is the most, perhaps the most dramatic one. There's a place in California called Butte Creek, and they took out four low dams on Butte Creek in the 1990s, and they were down 
to just a few hundred Chinook in in Butte Creek. And the luck of those dam removals is that coincided with some pretty healthy ocean conditions in the late 90s and early 2000s. And so in uh, in the early 2000s, they had runs of upwards of 20,000 fish come back to that, to Butte Creek. You know, Butte Creek's a tiny little drainage. You could wade across it in many, many places. And it's just a testament to the idea that if you provide the habitat, the, you know, the critters that want to be there are going to take advantage. They, they you figure know, the it out. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the Elwha removals that we've seen, it's kind of the opposite, the salmon health, the biggest factor is that what's going on in the ocean. The Elwha dams were removed in some years of poor ocean conditions, but there are still these surprises. And one of the biggest surprises on the Elwha has been the return of summer steelhead to the upper reaches of that basin. That's not something that anybody anticipated was going to happen. So even this river that I was just talking about, the White Salmon River, where on a clear day I can almost see the mouth of the White Salmon from right outside my house here, the trout fishing and steelhead fishing has improved markedly on that river because the habitat's there. And especially for anadromous fish, you know, if you open up habitat, particularly with steelhead, they're part of their survival strategy is to colonize places where there aren't large numbers of other fish. And so, uh, you know, you get steelhead trickling into a basin where they don't, sense any competition, you know. There's a really cool story about this, actually. If you don't mind, I'll just segue into it real quick. When Mount St. Helens blew up, uh, geez, 44 years ago now, when Mount St. Helens blew up, the Toodle River, you know, was just full of houses and logs and (laughs) every other kind of thing that's not good for salmonid. And fisheries biologists back then just kind of wrote off the Toodle and said, we won't have salmonids back in this river in our lifetime. Two years later, the biggest run of wild winter steelhead in the state of Washington was on the Toodle. And that's wow. because they were just figuring out that steelhead will colonize habitats that other fish, or and certainly fisheries biologists view as marginal. It's part of their strategy to, uh, if nobody else is in there, then you're going to have it all to yourself until <laughs> somebody hmm. else shows up. And uh, so, so it sounds like, I mean, from what you've just said, as these dams, and I'm speaking primarily West Coast U.S., where these salmon and steelhead runs are, yeah, that as they remove these dams, there's hope to get these fisheries, given that the commercial take is regulated, that there is some hope to get these, yeah. you know, salmon and steelhead fisheries back yeah. to, you know, somewhat sure. better than, than they are now, let's, let's, anyway. Let's give your listeners an East Coast example, too, because this is another really dramatic turnaround. In the Gulf of Maine, where dams first came out on the Kennebec River in, in 1999, a lot of people mark that as kind of the start of the modern dam removal era. But a bunch of other dams have come out on those I think four or five rivers that feed the Gulf of Maine. And, you know, we used to call these fish alewives, which is a terrible name for anything, let alone a fish that you want to catch. Now they call them river herring. And they're kind of the base of the food chain in those rivers. 
and they went from a trickle to, I believe, the last count in the Gulf of Maine is that there's an annual return of river herring now of more than 5 million of these fish. Well, the, the sort of cascade from that has been that every other species has benefited, you know, striped bass. Ultimately, mm-hmm. there's still a sliver, a smidgen of hope for Atlantic salmon, sturgeon. Uh, on the Kennebec, I know that not long after Edwards Dam came out, they had harbor seals swimming up the river for the first time anybody could remember. And I, I think the term for this in ecology is a trophic cascade, where you restore sort of a keystone species in the ecosystem, and it has a ripple effect throughout the rest of the ecosystem. And we see this in dam removals, right? And I think what happened in Maine is probably the best example that we have, where there's really just been a ecosystem-wide boost in both the abundance and diversity of species, because the habitat comes back when you take out dams. Yeah, there was, uh, I did a, a show recently on sockeye salmon in Alaska, how that whole system has been regulated to where the take commercially is regulated to where they have to allow so many fish to get upriver. And yeah. then, and it's important, not just in that allows the commercial fishermen to get their take and have a business and to feed us because sockeye are not a trophy fish in general, but they, their importance, their roe, their flesh are yeah. so important to the areas there, to other fish, to eagles, to bears, to, you know, uh, and just like you said, it just keeps rolling. Um, yeah. If you can fix something, then or put it back to the way it was, then, yeah, so many other parts of the environment benefit from that. Um, Yeah, you know, there's been studies here in the Pacific Northwest. They've come up with 137 different species that ultimately benefit from salmon at one stage of their lives or another. And then, of course, we know that the marine-derived nutrients that bears and other critters spread throughout the woods after eating salmon uh, I believe there's a study that came out of University of Washington that found coniferous forests, you know, all the, the big dug fir forests in the Pacific Northwest, in the presence, in river basins where there's salmon, in watersheds where there's salmon, those forests grow, the trees are up to a third bigger because of the presence of those marine-derived wow. nutrients. So, you know, the implications of really restoring a river are oftentimes far and wide beyond what we consider, you know. Right, right. Is there, I know we got to wind things up here, but one last question. Sure. Are there new dams being built or are we done building dams? We are done building dams in the United States. We're done building big dams. However, in the rest of the world, we have kind of a scourge of uh, large dam projects in there's a the beginning of the book talks about what's happening in the Mekong, which is uh, mm-hmm. you know to tell the very short version of the story. There's something like two million people that get their protein subsistence fishing in the Mekong system, and because of dams that have, have been and, and are being constructed in that system, that one of the consequences is nobody's quite sure where these two million people are going to get their protein once these fish are extirpated from the Mekong. So. This is a case where it would be really great if the rest of the world would 
follow our example. Because <laughs> they certainly, mm-hmm. you know, if you look at what happened in the Mekong, it was the Corps of Engineers in the 1950s that really made the blueprint for thoroughly damming that system. So that's another export that the United States may wish that it uh, had back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Any uh, final thoughts or is there a question I should have asked but didn't? No, I would just encourage uh, everybody that loves a river and sees that it's threatened in some way, shape, or form to to get involved in making sure that it is as healthy as it can be. And if that involves taking out a dam, then, you know, go for it. The low-hanging fruit in this movement is all of the smaller dams that everybody agrees need to come out and... All it takes is a couple people who care enough to start that process, and the dams can can go away. Is there a particular organization or anything people could be part of or contribute yeah, to? Yeah, um, American Rivers has a has been a champion, particularly for East Coast dam removal. I think that's something that they do very well: is funding these and permitting these abandoned or small dam projects. That you know, there's millions of them that need to come out. And, you know, the other thing I would suggest is that in uh, – I always joke that I don't give activist advice for the same reason I don't give dating advice. I don't know you, so I'm not quite sure what you <laughs> want out of your activist experience. But I would say local is better. Start in your home watershed. Find the groups that are working to protect and uh, restore your favorite creek or river and jump in the water with them. They're usually doing yeah, good things. Yeah. Good, good. All right. Well, we do have to wrap it up. We're over time already, but Steve, stick with me until uh, we, we've got some things to give away here. Sure. Uh, one-year yeah. membership to Fly Fishers International, one-year membership to Trout Unlimited, and also a copy of, of your book, Crack, the Future of Dams in a Hot, Chaotic World. So hang tight, and uh, sure. we'll be giving away those prizes in just a few minutes. The Bonefish and Tarpon Trust works very hard to safeguard the future of our beloved Flats fisheries from protecting spawning sites threatened by an unsustainable fishing pressure to securing historic funding to restore Florida's Everglades and estuaries. Thanks to their members, they've expanded their conservation to the Bahamas, Belize, and Mexico. There's still much more work to be done, and they need your help. With your support, they can ensure that the flats fishery is healthy and sustainable now and for generations to come. Visit BTT.org, BTT.org, and become a member today of the Bonefish and Tarpon Trust. Again, that's BTT.org. Just a reminder to everyone, before you leave the website tonight, please take a minute and give us your feedback about the show. You can find a link on our homepage in the section under tonight's show that says, what do you think of this show? Just click on that link and leave your comments. We'd really appreciate it. So now it's time to give away our prizes. The winners of our drawings are randomly selected from the show's registration database. And um, if you didn't register tonight, it's too late now, but be sure you do so for our next show so you have a chance at winning some of these great prizes. The lucky winners, we will contact you after the show to collect your information so that we can deliver your prize to you. So uh, hang tight on that. And uh, let me get my database going here. And give me just a minute. Okay, ready to go here. All right. Uh, Let's see who we have here. 
Okay, looks like our winner for our membership to Five Fishers International is going to be Kip Innes, Kip Innes in Missouri. So congratulations, Kip. Uh, I know you're going to enjoy your your membership to Fly Fishers International. And if, you, if you're not a member yet of Fly Fishers International, go and join. Great organization to support. Um, and let's see. Uh, who do we have here for the Trout Unlimited? Um, looks like uh, Kathy, Kathy Williams. Kathy Williams in Ohio. So congratulations, Kathy. You're now a proud member of Trout Unlimited. And again, if you folks are not members yet, go join Trout Unlimited. That's at tu.org, tu.org. Okay, so now we're going to give away uh, Steve's book, Crack, The Future of Dams in a Hot Chaotic World. If you don't win tonight, I suggest you get the book. It's an incredible read. Uh, we've got a link on our homepage there to uh, Steve's book, and you can buy it there, or you can buy it in Amazon or wherever you like to shop for your books. So uh, be sure to check that out. That there's lots Pardon? of pictures in this book. I would just add you know, to, to <laughs> plug pictures. There's, if you don't like long, unbroken sections of prose, there's beautiful photos in this book. And so, you know, you can just look at the pictures and still have a pretty good experience. I thought you were referring to my audience and, and kind of indicating that they don't know how to read or something and they'd enjoy <laughs> the pictures. <laughs> oh, I bet they can read. They're fly fishing. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, yeah. It's kind of like, you know, I just throwbacks to why do you get Playboy, you know? Oh, to read the articles. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, anyway, um, I diverged too far there, but that's okay. Got, got to get that a few laughs. Fault, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, the way you play this game is uh, – on the homepage, you can put in your answer, the question I'm going to ask here, and the and the first person that answers it correctly um, will win. Now, there could be multiple answers to this that would qualify, but um, Steve mentioned when I asked him to give specific examples of where dam removal had led to noticeable improvements in the fishing quality, he mentioned several fisheries. So give me the name of one of those fisheries, and you just got yourself... Steve's book, Cracked, The Future of Dams in a Hot Chaotic World. So um, we got to give him a second because there's a slight yep. delay in them hearing the question, and then we have to wait for them to type, and uh, well, I'm sure we'll get some answers here in short order. Yeah, so, that sounds good. That sounds uh, good. Yeah, it looks like the first one in came in, Butte Creek. Yeah, that, that one of the is answers? correct. That's one of the ones. Okay, so that's Kurt Creek in California. Finlayson. Yeah, um, Kurt Finlayson in Logan, Utah, who, again, has been a guest on my show and asked one of those questions tonight. So nice gift for doing just that. So, Kurt, give me your shipping address so that I can send the book out to you. Just put it in the same form there that you just answered the question in, and we'll get that book shipped out to you this week. So thanks, Kurt, for playing. Thanks for asking the question and sticking with us for the whole show. I always appreciate that from our audience. Love to have you guys and gals out there helping us with the show. 
Steve, thank you so much for being on the show. This was much different than my normal shows, and it was I, I was just chomping at the bit to get this done because I was curious as to the answers you would give tonight, and it was just it yeah. was just a lot of fun and very educational. I appreciate that. Yeah, it's been a, been a pleasure for sure. And you know, you, you have a very well educated audience that uh, not only asks great questions but seems to pay pretty close attention to what you're saying too. So you know. Uh, a pleasure being on the show, and I'll be back for sure. All righty. Thanks, Steve. Hopefully, you've all uh, found the podcast archive on our website. If you haven't, just look for the link in the top-line menu. In the archive, you'll be able to search for our past shows, over 390 shows now. You can search by keyword, phrase, or name, trout, tarpon, Madison River, fishery, all kinds of stuff. So check it out. I'm sure you'll be pleasantly surprised at the great shows that we've done over the years. Our next broadcast will be on February 21st, 7 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Eastern Time. And on that show, I interview Tom Dempsey. And our topic for the show will be sight fishing for redfish. Tom is obsessed with fly fishing and has chased fish in 40 different countries. He still gets a thrill out of sight fishing for redfish in his home waters of Alabama and has become an expert at it. Join us and learn how Tom approaches, hooks up, and lands these exciting fish. And be sure to check, uh, you know, you can add this upcoming show to your calendar by just clicking on the, the calendar, add the calendar links under his photograph on our home page. So do that, put it on your calendar, and you'll be sure that you'll uh, have it there to attend the live show. We'd like to thank Fly Fishers International, Trout Unlimited, Patagonia for providing that book tonight, uh, Steve's book, Least Fairy Anglers, Ugly Bug Fly Shop for sponsoring our show. Don't forget to visit our website at askaboutflyfishing.com and make sure you're signed up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing. Bye.